0: 8.45 a.m., June 22, 1900, Merchant Street, El Dorado, Kansas. Report from the Butler County Democrat Newspaper. Mrs. Emma Spangler and Mrs. Betty Marberly hear screams from the home of Olin and Clara Castle. They run to the front door of the house, but the screen door is locked. They hear the sounds of a desperate struggle inside. They run to the back of the house, but that door is also locked. As they run back to the front of the house, they see through a window that Mrs. Castle is on the floor with a woman bending over her. Emma and Betty break in the front door and pull the woman away. They both recognize her as Miss Jessie Lee Morrison. Mrs. Spangler starts to take Jessie to her home, but she breaks away saying, I must have that letter. Both Jessie and Mrs. Castle are bleeding profusely. While Betty attends to Clara Castle, who has been slashed badly in the throat, Emma takes Jessie home and calls a doctor. Quote, but a few moments passed, until the word was taken downtown, all was excitement, and business was practically suspended. Both men and women crowded to the scene, Unquote. Clara cannot speak, but she is conscious. She motions to Betty to bring her something to write with. She writes, Jesse Morrison killed me. listeners. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas, has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I found this week's case in a book called Murder and Mayhem in Southeast Kansas by Larry E. Wood. It's one of 13 historical cases in the book which, by the way, I highly recommend, a very good read for true crime fans and history buffs. I've noticed that I already have a couple of other cases from the book on the list of podcast cases to do in the future. I also dug into the coverage by local newspapers on the case. All the links are in the show notes. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. On June thirteenth, 1900, Mr. Guy Olin Castle, that name is spelled O-L-I-N, and that's what Guy likes to be called, or a lot of times just G-O Castle. The last name is spelled just like the castle the building, C-A-S-T-L-E, and Miss Clara Wiley are married at the home of the bride's parents on Oskaloosa Street in El Dorado, Kansas. El Dorado is a small town down by Wichita. In 1900, it has a population of about 3,500 people and is a prosperous little Kansas city. In 1915, the El Dorado oil field will be discovered, and El Dorado becomes something of an oil boomtown. It's still home today to a huge oil refinery as well as El Dorado Correctional Facility, which nowadays houses the worst criminals in Kansas. El Dorado is where death row is for Kansas. According to the local newspaper, quote, Mr. Castle is an excellent young man. He's almost 24, has good business ideas, and is connected with The Racket. The Racket is a store in town. He is a splendid musician and is a member of the band. Mrs. Castle is a pleasant and admirable young lady. She's 26 years old, and is also a valuable member of El Dorado's musical circles. Listeners, if you go through the society pages of the El Dorado newspaper, Clara is often mentioned as a vocal soloist at church and social functions. She was a very well-known soprano in town. At a late hour, the wedding is at 8.30 p.m., the guests escorted Mr. and Mrs. Castle to their new home on Merchant Street, which has been newly furnished and is very cozy and homelike. Mr. and Mrs. Castle were the recipients of many useful presents. About 50 guests were present." Unquote. Sounds like a lovely wedding of a nice young couple. Unfortunately, the happiness of this occasion will not last long at all—less than two weeks. Olin works at The Racket. So looking at newspapers, I think what kind of store it is is a big department store like clothes and things for the home, um, stoves and dishes and things like that. Olin meets Jesse Lee Morrison, the 29-year-old daughter of a prominent judge in town, about three years before he marries Clara. At the time, Jesse works in the millinery department at the Racket. Depending on who is telling the story, either they see each other casually for a short time, or they have a serious romance, which continues long after Olin meets Clara. A year or so after Olin keeps company with Jesse, he meets the lovely and talented Clara Wiley, the daughter of a prominent El Dorado businessman. He and Clara start seeing each other seriously in 1898, about two years before the wedding. Depending on who's telling the story, Olin is completely faithful to Clara and just tries to be polite to Jesse at work, but to distance himself from her. Or, Olin is continuing to see Jessie on the side and leading her on. Listeners, in my opinion, the truth is somewhere in between. Olin is a nice-looking guy, and he's barely in his 20s. I suspect he liked the idea of two women being interested in him. I think he may have strung Jesse along for a while. Jesse and Clara are both nice-looking, pleasant women. In fact, they look quite a bit alike to me. Why would Olin do something like that? Well, my best guess is that Jesse is willing to have sex with him. And good girl Clara isn't. This is the Victorian age in small-town America. Jessie's almost 30. She's pushing spinsterhood and may not have a lot of prospects. If Olin acts like he's madly in love with her, and young guys, actually guys of all ages, do that to get women in bed, so Jesse likely clings to the hope that he might still marry her. Things go on like that for a couple of years. In early 1900, depending on who's telling the story, Jesse either quits working at the racket or is fired. Whatever happened, She leaves town to visit her sister in Missouri for a couple of months. She and Olin are still writing letters to each other. When she gets back to El Dorado, Olin starts trying to make a clean break with Jesse. Jesse does not take this well. It actually sounds like she's stalking him. She keeps trying to talk to him. She keeps going into the racket where he works. Sends him notes, which he says he tears up without reading, maybe, and stopping him on the street. According to Olin, Jesse comes into the racket on June 1st and tells him, quote, I will be at Mr. Eller's, that's her sister, her sister's husband, at 11 p.m. tonight. Meet me there. And mark my words, if you don't, you'll wish you had," unquote. It's hard to tell what her threat is all about. Maybe she threatens to tell Clara what's going on. Clara must have heard rumors about Jesse and Olin. El Dorado's a little town. My guess is Clara really loves him and puts up with the situation for a while, but at some point forces him to make a choice. We don't really know, but my guess is that if Jesse did tell Clara, either Clara just brushed her off or told her, hey, I'm the one he's marrying, he's definitely chosen me, so you need to move on. Plus, it's also possible that Olin told Clara everything and she's fine with it as long as he marries her. Two nights before the wedding, Olin says that he runs into Jesse on his way home from Clara's house at 10.50 p.m. Sounds like stalking. Quote, Jesse stepped out on the walk and grabbed my coat. She stepped from between a tree and a telegraph pole. She wanted me to go up into the dark where no one could see us, said she wanted to talk and had some letters to show me. I pulled her away and went home." Not sure if all that's true or not. It's really hard to tell. Whatever's going on, That early summer in 1900, right before the wedding, Jessie Morrison is not taking it well. She is still obsessed with Olin, even in the days after his marriage. It's not hard to picture her stalking Olin and Clara, spying on them in their house on Merchant Street and seething with rage. According to Olin, He warns his wife about Jesse and tells her to keep the door locked. On the morning of June 22, 1900, just nine days after Clara and Olin's wedding, Jesse goes to see Clara. To say the least, the meeting does not go well, according to news reports. Doctors Kugler and Mackenzie were summoned and found her frightfully cut. The instrument used was a keen, hollow ground, black-handled razor, which lay on the floor. Listeners, picture an old-fashioned straight razor that men use for shaving. Several gashes extended across her throat from ear to ear The windpipe was severed in several places. The esophagus was nearly cut in two. A long, deep gash across the neck laid bare to the bone. In fact, she was nearly beheaded. Besides this, there were deep wounds on breast and arms. The blood was staunched, and she was told she could live but a very short time. She was perfectly conscious and her mind clear. She wrote replies to all questions and signed a statement in which she says that on last Friday, June 22nd, she was sitting in the front room of her home. When Miss Morrison came to the front door and made some remark, Mrs. Castle invited her to come in and they would talk it over. She came in Mrs. Castle sat down on a chair next to the lounge. Miss Morrison seated herself on the lounge and handed Mrs. Castle a letter or paper containing some inscription and told her that there was something she could read if she desired to and asked her if she wrote it. Mrs. Castle told her she had not. The next thing she knew, Miss Morrison assaulted her with a razor She first felt the razor on the back of her neck. She screamed and tried to get the razor away from Miss Morrison. She all the time continuing to cut her, and in grabbing at the razor, Mrs. Castle's fingers on the right hand were cut. Miss Morrison threw her down at or near the lounge and commenced to cut her on the throat and neck. She struggled and defended herself as best she could. She kicked Miss Morrison in the stomach and away from her, but at no time was she able to wrest the razor from her assailant. All this time she was screaming in terror. She remembers when Mrs Spangler and Mrs Mauberly came into the room. However, at the time, or just before the women entered the room, she saw Miss Morrison cut herself with the razor. Jessie, who sustained several cuts, is reported to be recovering nicely. She tells a quite different story. I was returning from Miss Lizzie Davis's, where I had been after a dress pattern. And when passing Mrs. Castle's home, She called me in and said, You have been an enemy of mine for some time. Why is it? I told her I had intended to call on her before she was married and see why she did not speak to me. Clara said that if I had called, she and her mother would have used me roughly. I told Clara I had never harmed her We had words. She called me a liar. I slapped or pushed her back. She went to the dresser, came back, and struck me with a razor. I threw up my arm and received two gashes on it. I knocked the razor out of her hand and picked it up and cut her several times. Don't know where or how bad. Clara fell. Someone grabbed me probably mrs spangler as she took me home i do not know what became of the razor listeners if you hear barking it's our dog fondly known as cujo he's been going crazy for about an hour i think it's coyotes i can hear them howling outside we live out in the country Anyway, I'm tired of starting over on the recording part, so just ignore him. So, as far as what happened on the fateful morning of June twenty-second, 1900, on Merchant Street in El Dorado, Kansas, we have two totally different stories. Despite her grave wounds, Clara survives the attack for quite a while. The doctors operate to repair her throat and there is hope that she will recover. The major problem to surmount is that she can't swallow nourishment. The doctors try to feed her through a feeding tube, but unfortunately she can't keep anything down. I just can't imagine how much she must have suffered. It's really horrifying. Clara Castle ultimately dies of starvation. Olin remains at her side constantly. She dies on July 10th, 1900, 18 days after the attack. The day before she dies, she tells friends and family goodbye and sends word to Jessie that she forgives her. Jessie is arrested and taken to the Butler County Jail. She has her own cell, complete with curtains, a pot-bellied stove, a small table with two chairs, and two beds. Her younger brother spends nights with her before he leaves for school in the mornings. Her father, Judge Morgan Morrison, retains a team of four top-notch defense attorneys. He has to mortgage the family home to afford this. County Attorney Brumbacher charges Jesse with first-degree murder. Jesse's trial begins in November 1900. It's a sensational trial, publicized nationwide. The Kansas City Star sends a reporter and an artist to cover the trial. One of the drawings shows Jesse's jail cell and the scene of the, of the crime. I'll put it on the website. On the 29th of November, the Star publishes an article about Jesse I found it very interesting because it gives an insight into the attitudes in society at the time about criminals and what they look like and about women. Jesse Morrison is a problem to the criminologists. They cannot find in her a characteristic feature of the criminal. There seems to be nothing to give force to the theory that she is a degenerate. An effort has been made to find some peculiar fact of her personal appearance or manner that would give evidence, theoretically, that she was capable of murder. Jessie Morrison is very small and delicately made. Her hands are shapely, her fingers taper toward the ends, and her nails are always well kept. Her teeth are even, her lips are rather full, but drawn down at the ends. Her chin is firm and her jaws square. Some people have said that her eyes are brown, and others have described them as gray. They are, in reality, a yellowish brown and their expression is mild. Miss Morrison has rather large, well-formed ears, a small nose, and plenty of brown hair. She is a woman who would never attract attention by her appearance. While her face is not beautiful, there is nothing disagreeable about it. And yet, if the charges of the state are true, this frail body has within it, latent now, the capacity for intense passion and action. And it seems that the only explanation for the crime, which is alleged, is that of an uncontrollable temper combined with strong determination. This reporter sounds like he's surprised that Jesse doesn't look like a murderer, whatever that is. And... Back in those days, they actually were even researching ways to predict by looking at people if they were murderers. I think nowadays, we almost think the opposite. There are murderers who are scary looking, but much of the time, they look just like somebody you'd have as a neighbor or coworker, nothing remarkable about them. It does come out that Jesse is known to have a bad temper. In fact, one of the proprietors of the racket says that she was discharged from the store because customers complained about how she interacted with them and the other employees. The prosecution's case is that the killing was premeditated, Jesse brought either two razors or one razor and a knife with her when she went to the Castle home. The motive was, quote, passion, jealousy, and anger, malice, and hatred against Mrs. Castle and her husband, unquote. The defense says that Clara was the one who was jealous, because Olin, quote, did not cease his attentions to Jesse Morrison, but continued his relations as before, unquote. Jesse was just innocently walking by when Clara asked her into the house. Clara accused her of trying to steal Olin, and they got into an argument. When Jesse tried to leave, Clara got the razor and tried to slash Jesse's throat. A desperate struggle for the razor ensued. Quote, what she did was done because she thought it was necessary to save her own life. The other woman was pressing the fight and Jesse Morrison did what she did in order to keep the other woman in her anger and frenzy from killing her, unquote. Keep in mind, the other woman is dead. Betty Moberly testifies about the bloody morning of June 22, 1900. She says that Jesse told her that Clara tried to kill herself and that she needed to retrieve a letter that was inside. The letter was found on the floor spotted with blood. Emma Spangler then gives her testimony. She states that she could hear two people talking when she first got to the house, but all she could hear was someone saying, No, I never wrote the letter. Then she heard, Get off me, Jesse Morrison. You are killing me. Then... Emma demonstrates how she saw Jessie with her hands at Clara's throat. Emma continues with an account of what happens after she gets Jessie away from Clara. I asked, woman, what have you done? I have killed Mrs. Castle, she said. And then she said, there's something in there that belongs to me that I want and I'm going to have it. I told her not to go back into the house, and she looked at me and said, I want a letter that's there. It's mine. And then Jessie Morrison said to me, I've killed Mrs. Castle. I cut her throat all to pieces with a razor. Then she jerked away, saying, I can go home alone. You needn't go with me. She had some dark object in her hand, and she hurriedly covered it with her skirt. Listeners, this testimony is quite an embellishment of what she testified to at the preliminary trial. Well, it's not a trial, preliminary hearing. When she gave testimony, this will become an issue later on for the defense. Personally, Yeah, I think she's embellishing. She probably remembered some things, but I also think she's doing her best to see that Jesse gets convicted. The prosecutor also calls two more witnesses who say they saw a blade in Jesse's hand. A razor has already been found next to Clara so did they all see a blade in jesse's hand um i don't know there are two other witnesses to the blade so possibly there are two weapons at the crime scene The papers explain that this way. It is the theory of the prosecution that this was part of a knife or razor carried to Clara Castle's house by Jesse Morrison. It is the claim of the state's attorneys that Miss Morrison took two razors, or maybe a knife, with her to the house so that she might leave one and take the other and thus establish a plea of self-defense. I'll talk about this later, but I will say I i kind of don't think so. I think there's just one murder weapon. Clearly the prosecution's best evidence is Clara's statements, but she's dead, so she can't give testimony and she can't be cross-examined. I've talked about hearsay, which is what this is, a couple of times before. According to Wikipedia, hearsay is, quote, an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted therein, unquote. The reason out-of-court statements or hearsay are inadmissible has to do with fairness to the defendant. When the prosecution presents something, the defense must have an opportunity to dispute it in our court system. For example, Say Annie is on trial for murdering her husband. Mary testifies in court, Susie told me that Annie said she killed her husband. Suppose the prosecution uses that to argue Annie killed her husband. Well, that's not fair to Annie, mainly because Mary's on the stand and Susie's not. Susie is the one the defense needs to show isn't being truthful. Now, what if Annie is on trial for murdering Susie or somebody? Mary testifies in court. Susie told me, Annie killed me. That's still hearsay, but there is a legal exception for what is termed a dying declaration. Since the dead person can't speak for herself, Susie in this case, a credible witness is allowed to. Of course, the defense can argue that the witness didn't hear right or was lying or whatever to dispute what the dead person said, but the testimony is still legally allowed. In reality, dying declarations are very persuasive to juries. It's natural to believe that people don't tell lies on their deathbeds. Now, Clara couldn't speak, but she did write, Jesse Killed Me, right after the attack, when everybody thought she could only live a little while longer. To me, that is clearly a dying declaration. However, the defense argues that she lived 18 more days, So even if she is the one who wrote the note, it wasn't a dying declaration. The final statement from Clara, which is quite detailed, is made on July 4th, almost a week before her death. At the time, does she really believe that she's dying? That's the question. Plus, the statement introduced in court is not written by her just signed by her that gives the defense some good points to argue what happens after the attack is that clara gets steadily weaker every day so she writes quite a few things out but sometimes they're rambling and sometimes they're pretty illegible because of that the people who are taking care of her decide to clean things up, copy what she's written so that it's clear. There's testimony that the way they do this is to read back to her what they think she's saying and then give her a chance to nod or shake her head with witnesses around to let them know if they need to change anything. The way the process is described, you can tell it was exhausting and painful for her. When they have the final statement, there's testimony that it's read to her and she nodded her head in approval and then signed it. Reading the statement, it's obvious it wasn't physically written by this poor woman who's had her throat cut is choking on her own blood and is starving to death. It's too concise and too clear. However, if you believe the witnesses, they did their best to get her actual words and thoughts down on paper. They went over them with her and she signed the statement. So can the witnesses be believed? Well, the witnesses are her doctors and her minister, among others, It's not hard for the prosecution to show they are pretty much beyond reproach. However, some of those participating in getting Clara's statements are clearly people, like her family and others, who believe Jesse is guilty. The defense rightly, I believe, argues that they might have influenced what was in Clara's statement. Another issue is that the actual sheets of paper that Clara wrote herself are not introduced at trial. There's lots of testimony now about razors. Sorry, listeners. Don't, you don't need to worry too much. The, ki- the coyotes don't get very close to the house, but it just snowed here, and I think everything that's moving out there is really visible to Cujo. So there's lots of testimony about razors. Olin's razor is found in the dresser next to the bed in its case with no blood on it. The importance of that is that it shows Clara didn't go get Olin's razor and attack Jesse with it. Somehow there's another razor there. There's also testimony about the murder weapon, which is found beside Clara. It's clearly the same type of razor that is sold at the racket. Olin testifies that two razors went missing from the inventory at the store not long after Jesse returned from visiting her sister. Other employees testify that Jesse would have been familiar with the razors and how they were kept in the store. The implication there is that Jesse certainly had the opportunity to steal the murder weapon. Jesse's defense attorneys have a field day when they question Olin. They want to show that Olin was leading Jesse on and Clara was jealous. Or that Olin is the one who keeps pursuing Jesse in spite of the fact that he's married. In short, that he's a cad. They do a pretty good job of that. Olin doesn't ever admit to an intimate relationship with Jessie. however, there is an impression that Olin was still enjoying the attention he was getting from Jessie, and he may even have liked making Clara jealous. Jessie takes the stand in her own defense and does a good job of sticking to her story. She holds up very well under cross-examination however part of her story is that clara attacked her and injured her badly this allows the prosecution to call the doctor who treated her injuries he's adamant that her injuries were minor and self-inflicted a number of other witnesses are called to bolster jesse's story Olin was the one who didn't want to end their relationship. Clara was the jealous one. Jesse's just innocently walking by the house when Clara gets her to come in the house and attacks her, and so forth and so on. It's not a bad case for the defense. Finally, on December 8, 1900, both sides rest. Closing arguments are presented the next day. The prosecution begs the jury to deliver justice for clara the defense asks the jury to free poor jesse who's just a victim of a jealous woman and her faithless husband and the woman's vengeful family and friends the judge's instructions to the jury are very thorough and very long he explains the possibility that jesse could be convicted on lesser charges like manslaughter the conditions that need to be met for a dying declaration to be considered proof of guilt, and the legal standards for self defense. The jury is out for several days, but ultimately they can agree on a verdict. The hung jury is discharged. The prosecutor is outraged. The defense celebrates. Jesse is released on bail christmas eve there's some question whether the county attorney will retry jesse i've talked about kansas prosecutors before their official title is county attorney and it's an elected position as we've seen in other instances politics can rear its ugly head in murder cases in this case when i read the letters to the editor and other stuff in the newspapers i get the feeling the county attorney could just as well have let this case go jesse morrison has a lot of supporters the members of the jury talk to the press and they say the jurors were nine to three in favor of acquittal according to them Jesse made a good impression on the jury, and they were not convinced that Clara's dying statement was authentic. I think, too, it's just hard for juries in those days to convict respectable women of violent murders. Remember, Lizzie Borden was acquitted of murdering her parents. There is also some sentiment that another expensive, sensational trial may not be good for Butler County's reputation. Nevertheless, on June 11, 1900, Jesse Morrison makes an appearance at court, quote, attired in a black silk skirt, blue silk waist with white flowered figures, black bow tie, white straw sailor hat with black band, carrying a neat parasol. Unquote. Yes, that's the first paragraph in the news story about Jesse's second trial for the murder of Clara Wiley Castle. What she's wearing, for goodness sake. This trial is not unlike the first one, except that the prosecution introduces more blood-stained evidence this time they show the jury all the bloody papers written by clara while she was dying for the most part they support the final statement that was presented at the first trial they also show the jury the clothes Jessie was wearing the day of the murder the cuts on her clothes don't show that she was viciously attacked with a razor. This time, the jury reaches a verdict of guilty, but only of manslaughter in the second degree. Listeners, to me, that says the jury probably felt that there was some heated argument not exactly victim blaming, but maybe that Clara provoked Jesse in some way so that she killed her in the heat of passion. The sentence for that is only three to five years confinement at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas, which is very close to Leavenworth, as we've talked about. Lansing is just south of Leavenworth. They actually share a border. And it's one of several large prisons that give Leavenworth its prison city nickname. On July 10th, 1901, a year to the day, since Clara's death, the El Dorado Daily Republican newspaper reports All along the road from El Dorado to Lansing, Miss Morrison was the center of attraction. Extended stops were made, and the people paraded through the car to take a look at her. I think it's a railroad car is what they're talking about. This was annoying, not only to Miss Morrison, but also the horse thieves who sat opposite her. Jessie Morrison arrived at Lansing at sundown last evening. As she got into the prison wagon to be taken to the penitentiary, her wonderful nerve failed her and the tears trickled down her cheeks. She was met at the prison gate by Warden Jewett and escorted through a big crowd of people to the office. Listeners, in 1917, just a few years after this, Lansing opens a separate part of the prison called the Women's Industrial Farm. I looked at an article about it on the Kansas State Historical Society webpage. The farm has an interesting history. Many of the women weren't put there on criminal charges, but really for morals charges. Sometimes, listeners, I may dig into the history of the women's prison. It sounds like it's fascinating. If you're familiar with Lansing, the farm, would have been east of the main prison on highway 5 where the old brick buildings are nowadays i believe that part is the minimum security part of lansing correctional facility and maybe some admin buildings i'm not really sure lcf only houses men now the women's prison for kansas is in topeka Sorry, got sidetracked. Jessie isn't at the farm because it's not built yet. In 1901, the women are in the main prison, just in a separate section. Jessie is put to work as a seamstress. Her defense team appeals her conviction, and Jessie gets a new trial in 1902. However, they probably should have left well enough alone. As it stood in 1901, Jessie would have served her sentence and been free no later than 1904. Unfortunately by the third trial the prosecution has honed their case against Jessie. This time she is convicted of second-degree murder and this judge He sentences Jesse Morrison to 25 years in prison. Truly devastating. It crushes her and her family. Their only recourse is to plead with the Kansas Patrol Board and the governor for mercy. She won't get it for several years. In 1910, she is granted parole. In 1913, Kansas Governor Hodges grants her a pardon. Now, pardon doesn't mean that the governor is saying she's innocent of the crime. It's more like he's saying, okay, you were a model prisoner and you've behaved well on parole, so go and try to make something out of your life. By all accounts, Jessie lives the rest of her life quietly with various relatives, as far as I can tell. She nurses her elderly parents and helps out her siblings. Okay, listeners, this is my favorite part, wild speculation. Although, in this case, it's hard to go too wild because the killer admits the killing, plus there are a lot of witnesses, including the victim, but we can still theorize and do some what ifs. The motive is crucial in this case. Clearly strong emotions are the driving force in what happened. So let's look at our three main players in this drama, Clara, Jesse, and in the middle, Olin, a classic love triangle. Looking at the three-year history of the relationship, this is what I think is going on. Olin is a bit of a player. Initially, he's a young bachelor dating two women at the same time. A lot of guys dream. I think Jessie's more desperate for a husband than Clara is. She's several years older, very close to spinsterhood. In those days, that's an insecure, humiliating place to be in life. All Jessie's sisters are married with children, even the younger ones. The social expectations for women like Clara and Jessie are that you marry a respectable man and raise respectable children. And certainly, you don't have sex until you get married. Is that what always really happened? Of course not. But this is the ideal in those days. And reputation is extremely important to women like Jessie and Clara. I think Jessie, Shall we say, succumbed to passion? And Clara didn't. And Jessie wouldn't be the first good woman to use sex to try to keep her man, nor would Olin be the first man to lead a woman on for the sake of sex. At the trial, much is made of the many buggy rides that Olin and Jesse took right up until the spring before the murder. Listeners, I think this is 1900 code for saying the couple often sneaked off for, shall we say, lovers' trysts. Jesse refuses to see it, but Olin makes his choice early on. He gets engaged to Clara. Jessie should have moved on at that point, but she didn't, so that's why we have a murderer, and she gradually goes all fatal attraction on Olin. I don't believe Clara, is blind to what's going on. El Dorado's a small town. I think she knows about the buggy rides. There's lots of talk about how Clara and her family are snubbing Jesse and Jesse's family. For example, Jesse and her family are not invited to the wedding, and both families attend the same church in town. So major snub there. I think Clara does know what's going on, but she's willing to accept Olin's lies and excuses, maybe a little bit of denial there, for a while. As the wedding gets closer, she puts more pressure on Olin to really make the break with Jessie, And I think at some point, Olin really is trying to do that. But by then, Jessie is obsessed with him. He probably weakens sometimes and gives her hope, too. This is very dangerous with an unstable woman like Jessie involved. The wedding and every day seeing her rival happily ensconced in the cozy little castle's love nest on Merchant Street, I think that just drives Jessie over the edge. I'm speculating, of course, But I see jealousy, humiliation, insecurity, denial, revenge, and hatred. Jesse is really a cauldron of all these different emotions. Something is going to give. Still, there are two sides to the story about the killing, self-defense and premeditated murder. Jessie's side of the story, she's just walking by the castle's house, and Clara accosts her. I could buy that. Clara communicates with people for over two weeks and gives some details of what happens. One thing she mentions is she was doing her chores that morning after Olin left for work, like shaking out her rugs in the front yard. Now, Clara's one, so to speak, but I'm sure she wishes Jesse would just leave town and quit trying to come between Clara and her husband, which I think Jesse is still trying to do. You know denial, 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 it's possible Jessie decided to confront Jessie once and for all, there in the little parlor on Merchant Street. All kinds of hateful things get said. Clara loses it. It's a tiny house. The bedroom dresser would be right there. Maybe Olin didn't put his razor away, so Clara grabs it and flies at Jessie in a rage. That would be terrifying for Jessie. She screams and gets cut, but manages to get the razor away from Clara. So she runs out of the house screaming in terror. Wait, no, that's not what happened. Jessie jumps on Clara and practically decapitates her. And to me, that's the problem with self defense. Jessie only has a few cuts and her doctor vehemently testifies that the cuts looked like they were self-inflicted. They were very minor, not like Jessie was trying to run away or fight back, but that she coolly gave herself a few minor wounds to bolster her story of self-defense. Now, it's still possible that Clara made some kind of first move toward Jessie, pushed her or something. I do think very hateful, hurtful things are said, and maybe there was some pushing and shoving, but there are two razors at the scene. One is Olin's, and it's in his case in the dresser. Could he have two razors? and one is sitting out possibly but why it's not like now when you just throw your razor blade away when it gets dull and put a new one in the razor in 1900 men use straight razors that have a handle that folds up and they're expensive and they take good care of them plus Olin and Clara aren't wealthy, in all likelihood, Olin has one nice quality razor with a razor strop so he can keep it sharp, and his razor is not the murder weapon. So if this is just a cat fight that got out of hand, Jessie's fear and rage just overtook her in the moment, then how? Does this other razor get to the scene? Well, the answer is obvious. Jessie brought it with her. And there's no innocent reason for Jessie to be carrying a straight razor around with her. She brought it with her for a reason possibly just to threaten Clara. I guess we could speculate her plan was to threaten Clara into, I don't know, something? Leaving Olin? Quit talking about me? I don't know. But I don't think that makes much sense. I think Jesse plans to kill Clara that day. It's premeditated murder, plain and simple. Now, considering what happens, It may not be a very well-planned murder, more like pure jealousy with no thought to the consequences. And that could be, listeners, Jessie just couldn't take it anymore. She grabs a razor, her father's maybe, rushes over to the castle house, pushes her way in and brutally kills her rival because she just can't control herself. This is plausible. I do think Jessie's mentally ill, not to the point of criminally insane. She forms the intent to murder and knows what she's doing, but I do think she needs some serious psychological help. In my opinion, the result of her third trial, when she's convicted of second degree murder, shows that's what the jury and the judge think is going on. However, listeners, I have my own theory, and it's first-degree murder. It's not rock-solid, just what I think. It's hard to reconstruct exactly what happened that morning from all the conflicting accounts and incomplete stories and stories that really just don't make much sense. The medical testimony is pretty consistent, though, and detailed, so i think to me from that it's very clear that jesse determinedly attacked clara meaning to cut her throat maybe even decapitate her clara says she invited jesse in because jesse wanted to talk about a letter. Okay, there's a lot of talk about this letter. After the attack, Jesse makes a big deal out of wanting to go back in and get it. The prosecution theory is that the letter is to get Jesse into the house, as well as distract Clara so she can attack. It turns out the letter is just some innocuous letter from Jesse's sister. So the two sit down in the parlor And somehow, the attack begins. Whatever happens, I believe Jesse's plan to kill Clara with the razor. The screen door's locked, so either Clara locks it, not sure why she would do that, or more likely, Jesse acts like she's leaving and locks the screen door right before the attack, or she locks it as she's walking into the house behind Clara. That's what I actually think happened. Not sure how important that is. The screen door is definitely locked. Whatever happened when she attacked, it wasn't what Jesse expected. In the movies, it seems like the killer always comes up behind the victim, pulls the head back, and pulls the knife hard across the throat. Listeners, I didn't want to Google how to cut somebody's throat for fear of what I might find. So I have no idea if this is realistic or not. But I think Clara just sees a couple of swift slashes across Clara's throat, and it's all over. No screaming, no struggling, no pesky neighbor women. But, unfortunately for Jesse's plan, Clara's not fatally wounded at first. Once the victim's down, though, Jesse's relentless, and inflicts the ultimately fatal wound to Clara's windpipe. I think she's in a frenzy by that time and trying to cut Clara's head off. It's remarkable she didn't get a major blood vessel. If she does that, Clara will bleed out rapidly. Of course, there is screaming and fighting and murder interrupted by Emma and Betty, Jesse claims self defense. Now, it's possible that was her plan all along to claim self defense, but I think that was improvising. No way Jesse thinks Clara will be alive to say what happened, or that Jesse thinks she'll get caught. In my opinion, while speculation, if you will, Jesse's plan is supposed to go something like this. She steals a razor that's like Olin's from the racket. She waits for Olin to leave for work the fatal morning. She quietly kills Clara with the stolen razor. Then she takes Olin's razor with her, goes about her business, and waits for the body to be discovered. Most likely, Olin will be the one to find the body. In this scenario, who is the most likely to be blamed? The spouse, of course, especially one as faithless as Olin has been. Look at what happened. Many people thought Olin was still carrying on with Jessie, even after he married Clara. It's possible even Clara thought that. It wouldn't be a stretch to think... He quarrels with his new wife, loses his temper, grabs his razor, and kills her. It would be a stretch to accuse respectable Miss Jessie Lee Morrison, daughter of Judge Morrison, of a brutal murder like this with a men's razor, of all things. Even during the trial, this was a hard sell. So what if someone sees her going into the house? She just says, we exchanged a few pleasantries between neighbors. Clara was fine when I left, although she did mention she had an argument with her husband. That's not a bad plan. When things go wrong, Jessie does a pretty good job of thinking on her feet. With Emma and Betty about to break in, she knows she's caught, so she comes up with the self-defense claim and even has the presence of mind to give herself a few cuts to lend credence to her story. She's standing up when they get there. I think she was trying to go get Olin's razor, That's why when she doesn't have time to do that, she makes a big deal out of some meaningless letter to give herself a way back into the house. If she can get in there and get Olin's razor, she won't have to explain the second razor being on the scene. It's pretty desperate, and it doesn't work, but it shows how strong her sense of self-preservation is. Anyway, that's my theory, and I think it's not a bad, although very diabolical, plan, one that lets Jessie get revenge on both the people who hurt her at the same time. It reminds me of what I thought about the ending of the movie, Fatal Attraction, and what I thought it was going to be when I watched it. I guess I should give a spoiler alert to my listeners in case anybody out there hasn't seen the murder, I mean the movie, and doesn't know the plot. I'm going to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Recap. The Glenn Close character named Alice the other woman has a fling with the Michael Douglas character. I can't remember his name. Who is married to the lovely Ann Archer. Can't remember her character's name either. When he tries to break things off, Alex goes psycho and terrorizes his family. At the end, the poor wife ends up having to kill Alex. The bad woman gets her just desserts, and we have our typical Hollywood ending, which I just hated. I was really almost angry when I left the movie theater. All through the movie, there are these references to the opera Madame Butterfly. And what's the ending to Madame Butterfly? she kills herself with a knife because her lover leaves her so i'm thinking alex's ultimate plan is to either goad the unfaithful husband into killing her or she's going to kill herself by stabbing like madam butterfly at the same time making it look like the douglas character killed her. Diabolical, right? Yes, listeners, even 30 years ago, that's how my brain worked. In one part of the movie, Alex gets him over to her apartment and gets his fingerprints on a knife, which she carefully saves. So after that scene, I'm just sure how it's going to end, and I'm kind of looking forward to it. Apparently, this is close to the original ending for the movie, which audiences didn't like, so they changed it. The husband gets arrested for Alex's murder in the original ending. Now, if I'd been the director, fade to black with Douglas in the back of a police car driving away. Of course even the original ending gets ruined by Hollywood they have the wife I don't know finding a tape or something that proves his innocence if you're interested I think I've heard the alternate ending is on YouTube so for whatever it's worth back from my sidetrack I think this murder was a carefully premeditated murder that Jessie almost got away with. She did have to spend quite a few years in prison, honestly, more years than a lot of murderers served today, but she didn't hang. And I think a better investigation and better prosecution at trial might have gotten her the death penalty. Did she deserve it? You guys know how judgmental I am, especially about murder. And in this case, I think so. It keeps getting forgotten that Clara suffered an agonizing, prolonged death that she in no way deserved. If I were governor of Kansas, I wouldn't have pardoned her. However, I guess I could see a little justification for mercy, but you'd have to convince me that Jessie was in such a bad place mentally that she could only see one way to resolve her issues. Even then, I don't know. If it were up to me, she would have died in prison. Clara is buried at Belle Vista Cemetery in El Dorado. She is on Find a Grave if you'd like to leave her a virtual flower. Her parents, Roland and Nancy Wiley, are both buried nearby. Olin remarries in 1903 out in California to Lillian de Talente. That's my best French accent. I didn't do a whole genealogy search on them, but it looks like they're in California for a long time. Let's hope they live long, happy lives. I do know that Guy lived a long life, at least. He doesn't die until 1973 at the age of 96, and he's buried in Illinois. His grave is also posted on www.findagrave.com I don't know for sure what happened to Jessie. She seems to have lived out the rest of her life in obscurity. The last record I could find on her is the 1930 census. She's out in California living with one of her sisters. Her occupation is listed as maid. Interesting that... She doesn't live all that far from where Olin is in California. They're both in Los Angeles. I did find a marriage record for a Jessie Lee Morrison in Braxton County, West Virginia, where her family hails from. But there are a lot of Morrisons in that area and several Jesse Lee Morrisons, so I'm not sure if that's her or a relative. The groom is named Chilton Summers, and there are a lot of those, too, in that part of the country. If any listeners are in West Virginia, you might want to see if you can find anything out. Chasing Down What Happened to Jesse Morrison, Convicted Murderer, is now on my list of... Things to do when I have time. It's a very long list, so I'd love to know if you find out anything. For now, I'm just going to imagine that she spent all her time helping others and trying to redeem herself until the day she died. Listeners, for this case, I used articles from the historical newspapers, the El Dorado Daily Republican, and the Butler County Democrat. Well, several little newspapers merged over the years in this area. So nowadays, there's just one. If you're in El Dorado, Kansas, your newspaper is the Butler County Times Gazette, and of course, I Googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites, mainly Ancestry.com. I also mentioned the book Murder and Mayhem in Southeast Kansas. That's written by Larry E. Wood, and it's available on Amazon. I put all the links in the show notes. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. I, As I've said, I don't really want any constructive criticism. It's my podcast. I'll do it the way I want to. And my family and friends do a very good job of criticizing just about everything I do. They're also very judgmental. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blueberry.net. If you hate putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I get it. Uh, there Cujo goes again. Um, I, I understand that. Sometimes people are mean online, but I do monitor the website, so I will take anything mean off of there. You can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.